Are you ready? It's one of the questions, if you live in Wellington, that we are asked all the time. An earthquake is, is inevitable and it's important that we are prepared. And for me, I'm really complacent about this, I'll be honest. Um, when the big Kaikoura earthquake happened, my family are at home, I'm on a flight uh, into Sydney. I had no idea what was going on until I opened my emails in Sydney airport. Uh, the other day that we had an earthquake and the family are at home and I'm driving. And so again, I didn't feel it. So it can lead me to a little, be a little bit complacent. So when it comes to our readiness as a family, this is our emergency supplies, like a little bit of water that's going to last about five minutes, um, spare gas canister for the barbecue. It's not even spare. That's the actual one. And a token backpack with some things that I probably won't even be able to use. But earthquakes, we're told, are inevitable. And so we're told, prepare in advance. And yet we're also warned in Scripture that spiritual struggle is inevitable as well. And I want to ask the question today, are we ready for that? Are we preparing in advance? I think it's even more important for us as a church right now. We've just come through a month of prayer. We're... Uh, we're pursuing a disciple-making culture as a church. We're doing all we can to reach out. We're planting new locations and raising up new leaders all the time. And I just wonder whether we're sticking our head above the parapet, so to speak. These sorts of actions as a church are not going to go unnoticed. And so spiritual struggle is inevitable. We have to be ready. We're going to turn to Ephesians 6 today, which talks about the why we're to be ready and the when we're to be ready and the how to be ready. And here's the big idea that I want to make sure you take away today. It's this. Don't take spiritual struggle lying down. Turn with me to Ephesians 6 and we're going to read from verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when, you can, when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand. And after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So we can hear from that that the, the most important thing in terms of being ready is putting on the full armor of God. And so the first thing we want to say is, why do we need the full armor? Why do we need it? Well, number one, it's so that we can stand against the devil's schemes. Think about the things in life that we do lying down. We sleep lying down. We rest lying down. We sunbathe. We relax lying down. Um, if you're going to have surgery, you lie down. If you're sick, you lie down. You see, these are sort of lying down things. What about sitting? Maybe you sit to relax. You sit to read. You sit to enjoy a coffee. You, you, you sit to enjoy a meal, that sort of thing. But when you stand. It's much more action orientated. We stand to, to leave a room. We stand to catch a bus. We, we stand to, to go somewhere. 
And so when Paul talks again and again and again in this passage about standing, it's not lying down, it's not sitting down, it's standing because our posture in in the face of spiritual struggle is to stand because we're to do something about it. Like imagine you're lying in bed at night and you hear a creak and you know it's not an ordinary creak, you know somebody's in the house. What posture are you going to take? Are you going to lie down? Are you going to just sit up in bed? No, you're going to stand. You're going to move. You're going to go and see what it is. You're going to confront the situation. And so Paul is saying here, when it comes to spiritual struggle and the attacks that come upon the church, do not take it lying down. But there's a second why here. And that's this, that the struggle is spiritual. Look at this in verse 12 with me. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. Our battle is not against flesh and blood. The battle is not against that person who's overly critical, the person who's talking behind your back, the person who always discourages you. That's not the battle. The battle is not uh, Shinjongji and the cult that is trying to take people out of our church. That's not, they're not the enemy. The enemy is not a liberal government that wants to uh, liberalize things like euthanasia and abortion. They are not the enemy. The enemy are the spiritual forces at work behind them. And so I just wonder, what, are the, what have you misdiagnosed as flesh and blood recently? What are the things where you've thought the person is the problem, my boss is the problem, the government is the problem, or something like that? Have a think about that. Because what we're going to look at today is, if that's sort of a misdiagnosis, what is a right diagnosis that we can apply the right prescription? So what have you misdiagnosed recently? Let's look at though where the, uh, what the enemy really is. It's not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. I've highlighted these words, rulers and authorities, because these words appear elsewhere in Ephesians. And I think when we look at them, it establishes the sort of boundaries of the battlefield and lets us know where that spiritual conflict exists. So in Ephesians 1, it says this, that power is the same as the mighty strength he, that is God, exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. So sort of first marker around this battlefield is that is that Christ in his death and resurrection defeated these rulers and authorities and he reigns far above them. Then in Ephesians 2, it says this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Those two words, rule and authorities, in the Greek are hidden in this phrase. And the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So what it means is the rulers and authorities are defeated in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Yet in this season, in the age of the church, they are still operating, deceiving and blinding people and keeping pe- trying to keep people away from believing in Jesus. And into that context comes those who have believed the church whose responsibility is this. His intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God, the many layered wisdom of God, that is the gospel, should be made known to these rulers and authorities. So Christ is victorious, but the defeated enemies of God are still at work in the world. And we are proclaiming to them, you lie. 
lost. Christ is victorious. And so then we become uh, people who are marked by these rulers and authorities as people that they want to take out (laughs) and take out the church so that this message of victory might be silenced. And so what we come to realize is that because this is a spiritual struggle, it requires a spiritual solution, which is where the armor of God comes in. Second thing, so I promised you a why. I almost promised, also promised you a when. When do we need the full armor of God? And the answer is in verse 13. It says this, Therefore put on the full armor of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to take your stand. Oh, sorry, you may be able to stand your ground. And after you have done everything to stand, what's the when here? Notice, if you're going to be ready when the day of evil comes, then you're going to need to be prepared in advance. But then uh, you may be able to stand your ground. That's a during and after you've done everything to stand. So there's a before, there's a during, and there's an after thing. We're supposed to wear it all the time. It's supposed to be always on us. Now, there's a bit of a debate here in terms of what the day of evil actually is. Some people think it's eschatological. That means means like end times, that there's going to be a ramping up of the work of of these rulers and authorities in the end times before Jesus comes. Other people look at the way Paul uses this word days of evil in chapter 5 when he's talking about leaving your old life and following the ways of Jesus and that the the world we live in, these are sort of evil days and that's where it works. And I I want you to see that it's sort of an important conversation, but the actual answer at the end of the day doesn't really matter. And here's the reason. If it's eschatological, if it's future, then when's Satan going to start? When's the devil going to start trying to attack the church? Is he going to wait till those days? No, he's going to do it right now. And so the when that we're to have the full armor of God in sort of doesn't matter when the days of evil are going to happen. The point is we're to wear it all the time. We're to be ready today. We're not to wait another moment. And so now I want you to think about, so how do we put on the full armor of God? And I want to take a different approach here because I think over time people have said, you know, when you notice spiritual struggle, read Ephesians 6, read those words about the belt of truth, and that's going to be helpful. And I think scripture is powerful, but at the same time, I think that Paul is after something a little bit more practical here. He's not after you going, okay, there's spiritual struggle, let's put on the belt, Uh, let's put on the breastplate of righteousness. I think he's after something more practical than that. The armor isn't the armor of a Roman pen pusher, it's not the armor of um, a Roman. Roman infantry, uh, Roman soldier in a prison, guarding a prisoner. It's the armor of a Roman defending a fortress. And so we've got to think, what is the fortress that we are defending? And these words in Ephesians 6 come right at the end of Ephesians, where Paul has basically given his blueprint on the church. He's saying, here is the territory that Christ has won for the church in his death and resurrection. Here's the fortress that he has built. And I want to suggest, therefore, that the schemes of the enemy are going to come against that fortress, and we have been given the armor to defend it. And so what are those schemes that the enemy might put, uh, might, might throw, might, might 
try to challenge, might try and attack the church with. And I think the answers are throughout Ephesians when we understand what is it that Christ has established for us. So let's do a little bit of a journey through Ephesians together. Ephesians 1, 1 to 14 talks about you've been given every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. If you go there, you'll see words like you were chosen, you were adopted, you were redeemed, you were given the, this seal guaranteeing your inheritance. And so these are the things that Satan is going to go after, I believe, by trying to cause doubt over that. Trying to make you convinced that the, be convinced that those things aren't true. Here's the second thing. If you go to Ephesians chapter 2, it says this. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Satan and his minions, the rulers and authorities, they're at work in the world trying to keep people disobedient before God, trying to keep people deceived and blinded to the gospel. And so I think the second attack we've got is deception. Then go with me to, to chapter 2, verse 14, and it's talking about how God has reconciled us to himself and also reconciled us to one another. Verse 14 says this, For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He has reconciled Jews and Gentiles. He has reconciled different nations in the church under Christ. And so what, what do you think the scheme of the enemy is going to be there? These rulers and authorities are going to try and bring division in the church then we've already read it today in verse 10 of chapter 3 his intent was that now through the church the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities if our purpose is to make known the victory of Jesus in the world so that people can believe I think these rulers and authorities are going to try and distract us and dissuade us so when you get that that thought that no, maybe I won't share with that person. Maybe I won't be honest about, about what God has done in my life. You're, I believe those rulers and authorities are trying to distract you and dissuade you from sharing the message of Jesus. Paul then talks about these reconciled people who are making known the gospel uh, are then growing and building um, themselves up in love as each part does its work. So the church is building each other up towards maturity. Verse uh, 13 of chapter 4 says this, Until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. That's Christ's goal for the church. So what are these rulers and authorities going to want to do about this? They're going to want to try and deny us getting to maturity. Stop you functioning. Now, I cheated a little bit here. You'll be like, deny? Really? But it's a D, so I'm sticking with it. But, but just go with it. Think about it, that we're, we're, to, we're to use the gifts and abilities that God has given us to serve one another in love so that we're growing towards maturity. And these rulers and authorities are going to want to go after that then um, this body that we're in, this church, we're supposed to be leaving our old ways behind and moving on to new ways. And so you go to verse 22 of chapter 4. It says this, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of 
attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Do you notice the word deceitful desires? And so the, these rulers and authorities are going to want to try and stop you moving from those old desires and, and moving towards the desires of, that God would, ha- would have you have. And so it's like these rulers and authorities are going to go after what you love and what you desire and what you're tempted by and play to that and try and stop you, keep you stuck in that old life. Chapter five then talks about, um, talks about marriage and talks about parenting and talks about slaves and masters. That's first uh, century context. But I want you to think about that in terms of workplace and things like that and, and authorities that God has established. There's an order that God has established, particularly in marriage and particularly in, in families. And so what's, what are these rules of authorities going to want to go after? I think they're going to go after disorder and try and disrupt those things that God has established Those are important elements of order. And so I think these are the points of attack. I think these are the things. So the people are not the problem. The government's not the problem. I think these are the the schemes of the enemy, the real spiritual forces that are at work behind the, the, the natural way of things. And so as you think about what have you misdiagnosed when it comes to, um, this spiritual struggle, this gives you an idea of not the misdiagnosis, but the way of correcting that by giving then a proper diagnosis. And when we understand that, I think we then get an idea of, so how are we actually going to be able to stand against this struggle? And this is where we come to the armor of God. And the first thing we're given is the belt of truth. I think this speaks to integrity. Okay, we were included in Christ when we heard the message of truth. And so some people think that the belt of truth is about what we believe about Jesus, that when we first came to believe, we believed in him. That's like the belt of truth that surrounds us. But Paul wouldn't be telling you to put that on right now because he's talking to the church who have already put that on. And so what is the truth that we're to put on? I think it's something to do with actually living in line with that truth. That that truth is supposed to surround your whole life. So when you think about it surrounding your whole life, I think what the rulers and authorities are going to want to go after is your integrity. And so the question comes, um, are you living in any different way at home or in private than you do in public? Are you doing well uh, living in the truth that Christ has given you in public, but then doing different things privately? We're to be people of integrity where our private life matches our public life. And so is there any area today where Christ might be, be challenging you on an area in your private life? Here's the second thing, the breastplate of righteousness. It's similar to the, to, to the belt of truth, um, but righteousness is a word that also means justified. And so it can rightly be understood as these are the things, again, we first believed. But I want to challenge you in thinking that way. It's, pos- it's a possible interpretation, but I really favor something more practical because Paul is telling you to put something on as a believer. And so I think that righteousness it's talking about there must be ethical. It must be not just believing right things about God, but living in righteousness, living in a way that God has already declared you to be. And so it means we're to pay attention to areas of our character. 
areas where our character is not fully Christ-like. For me, I've noticed recently one of the fruits, fruit of the Spirit is joy, and that's really lacking in my life, and it causes me to pay attention. And through a Bible plan I was reading recently that John Mark Comer wrote out of um, the ruthless elimination of hurry, I realized that the fast-paced way I live life is actually robbing me of joy. It's robbing me of taking moments where I'm still and I appreciate the things that God has done for me that can bring joy in my life. And so that's an area of character that's lacking for me, that God is calling me to to strengthen, to, to put on, that that might not be something that the rulers and authorities are able to challenge. I wonder where God needs to work on your character today. Third thing is that our feet are to be fitted with the readiness of the gospel of peace. Now, go with me. When you think Roman soldier like this guy, this is a slightly wrong uh, picture, but, but just uh, please be gracious with me. It's quite hard to find first century Roman infantry that, that is guarding a fortress. That's quite hard imagery to find. So I found this guy. He's wearing sandals. Um, but that's the imagery I think comes to mind for us. But scholars suggest that the armor that's being described here is more like boots, probably with like uh, studs in the bottom. And so it's sort of like hiking boots, that sort of thing. The sort of footwear you'd, you'd put on when you want to stand firm. You're not trying to move quickly. You're trying to stand firm. You're trying to press against something. Don't you think that makes more sense with the, with the way we're understanding that passage today? And so we're to stand firm in the good news of the gospel. Now think of this in the context of, um, of the fact that we're united with God and united with one another. And we've said that one of the schemes of the enemy would be to, to provoke division. And so when we stand firm in the gospel of peace, we're to be reminding ourselves that God has reconciled us to himself and and, and reconciled us to one another. And we're to stand firm in the peace that he has, has purchased for us. And so I think these sandals are about peace and unity, peace and unity, maintaining the unity that Jesus has purchased for us. You know, there are times when I hear of people talking behind my back, spreading rumors, um, maybe uh, uh, doing things that I think are quite divisive in the church. And I'll be honest, my tendency is to pull back from them. My tendency would be to, to avoid them in some way. And yet, as I've been looking at this and realizing that the enemy is going after division, trying to divide a wedge, bring a wedge between people, when I notice that now, I don't stand back, I go after it. I seek reconciliation with that person. Why? Because a scheme of the enemy is to divide. And I want to go after that and make sure that we're standing in unity. Third thing is the helmet of salvation. The book of Ephesians tells you so much about what God has done for you, that you're safeguarded in your faith, that when you believed you were given the spirit of God as a deposit, guaranteeing your inheritance. And I think what the enemy is going to want to do is put so, uh, so doubt into that and lie to you about that and suggest that it's not really true and suggest that some of those wonderful things that God has done for you in Jesus, things like adoption and things like redemption and things like forgiveness uh, are not true. And so the helmet of salvation is a way of us standing and saying, no, those things are true. And so I think that the helmet of salvation is actually about assurance, assurance of what Christ has done for you, assurance of your salvation. Do you ever doubt? Do you ever struggle with that? 
We're to wear the, the helmet of salvation, reminding us of what Christ has done for us. The, the final ones, the, the, the shield of faith and the sword of the Spirit, I think of this wonderful combo of extinguishing lies and proclaiming truth. Um, the word for shield comes from a, a Greek word for door. Like this is a big shield. And they were soaked so that when the fiery arrows came, fiery yeah, arrows came, that when, the, when you put up the shield, it would stop, the, the, the arrows would go into it and it would extinguish the flames. And I think this is like where um, the enemy wants to sow lies. You're not welcome. You don't belong. You're not saved. You're not really forgiven. You've got to work at it. You've got to prove yourself. All those lies that can come our way. It's like we're able to say, that's a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. And extinguish those lies. But it goes with this, with this um, sword of the Spirit, which, it, which Ephesians tells us is also the Word of God. But that word is not logos as in written word. It's, it's word rima, which is the, the spoken word. I want to suggest that that Word of God that is represented by the sword of the Spirit is the inner voice of the Spirit reminding you of God's written word. It's where you've been reading scripture, you've been memorizing scripture, and, and, and the Spirit of God is going to drop the, the nugget of truth that you need just at the right moment. And so the sword of the Spirit and the, and the shield of faith becomes such a potent combination there. You know, when, when the enemy says, you don't belong, you're like, that's a lie. And you're able to say, the sword of the Spirit says, I'm adopted as a son. When the, when the enemy says, you're not good enough, lie. And the sword of the Spirit says, I've been saved by grace. When it says, you won't make it, the shield says, that's a lie. And the sword of the Spirit says, I've been given the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing my inheritance. I wonder as you look at these things today, what it is when you've thought about maybe the spiritual attack that you've misdiagnosed, and then the re-diagnosis you've given it. Okay, what is the enemy really going after? Is it doubt there? Is it division there? And then going, what is the armor that needs strengthening? What is the thing that I need to be putting on? We're to put on the whole armor of God. It's not like just one is good, good enough. We've put on the whole armor of God. But maybe you might look at that and go, maybe it's my integrity that actually God wants me to work on today. That's the work he wants me to put on. That's the thing that needs strengthening. Maybe you need to get good at this combo of that's a lie. This is the truth. And so maybe in that, what you need to do is strengthen your understanding of scripture, strengthen your understanding of, of verses, verses in the Bible so that when those lies come, you're able to say, now I know, I know what the truth is. The Spirit of God is able to remind you of what the Bible says. Let me close with this thought. The armor of God teaches us that the church is under attack. And we're to see our church as a fortress, that God is of the territory that Christ has won for us. And we're to wear the full armor of God and to notice where the battle really is and to stand firm in that. If an intruder came into your house in the middle of the night, let's take my house. I've got a wife and three, three girls. If an intruder came into my house in the middle of the night, I'm not going to lie down. I'm not just going to sit there wondering what I'm going to do, what, what, what I might do. I'm going to go after it and I'm going to, I'm going to literally lay my life down if it's needed for the sake of those children. I should probably call the police. I realize that, but I'm not going to take it lying down. 
And so we understand that the church is under attack. We are not to take that lying down either. So I want you to take one thing away from today, that if we're to be a church standing firm, then what are the things that God would have you do to remind yourself of this? It might be to take seriously the work we've just talked about of identifying areas of armor that need strengthening. It might be that you want to read Ephesians to try and get a fuller understanding of this blueprint of the church. And so you're more aware of this territory that Christ has won for us. There's some wonderful memory verses in there as well. It might be that you want to start every day by reading these verses, uh, verse 10 through to verse 17, about the armor of God. And you want to get that into the rhythm of your daily life. Maybe you want to put up a picture of a castle in your house to remind yourself that the church is a fortress. Maybe jump on Trade Me and try and buy a Roman helmet and put it on the coffee table to be this constant reminder. I don't mind what you do. It can be as wacky as you like. But if the church is under attack, let us never again be caught sleeping. But let us stand against it and stand firm and keep on standing together that we might maintain the territory that Christ has purchased for us. Lord, I pray today that you'd help us stand strong in all that you have won for us. We're so grateful for it. Let us appreciate all the more. Let us stand firm in it. And let us continue in this bold proclamation of making the victory of Jesus known and seeing more and more people appreciate and come into this fortress of what Christ has won for us. We pray in your wonderful name. Amen.